words before But every time I say I love you The words mean something more Now we speak them as a promise Right from the start And say death will be the only thing That can tear us apart and how that we are standing on the edge of the unknown I love you means I'll be with you wherever you must go and I will take a heart as nature is to beat for me alone and fill it up with you make all your joy and pain no matter how deep a valley you go through, I will go there with you. And I will give myself to love the way love gave itself for me. And climb with you to mountaintops or swim the raging sea to the place where one heart is made from two I will go there with you Sometimes there may be tears You wonder where you are The winds of life blow colder And the sky it may look dark We can walk through every trial If we hold each other's hand So I stand to say for better or for worse I will be true And no matter what you go through I will go with you And I will take the hardest nature Is to be
Stephen and Julie, you've both been blessed to grow up and spend your entire lives here in this beloved community. Stephen, the site of the home you're about to move into was cleared and first settled by your mom and me when we got married in 1995. Julie, the actual house that has now been moved to that location is the very house that you were born in. For both of you, your parents, siblings, cousins, aunts and uncles, numerous grandparents all live in this same community and we are all a daily part of each other's lives. What a rare privilege in today's world. Close-knit family and community bonds like this used to be common. But as the Industrial Revolution etched its acidic path across the world, specialization of labor and segregation of relationships became necessary to feed the voracious appetite of unfettered industry most efficiently. A person's most prized qualities were no longer wisdom, personality, honor, love, and the like. Now, what a person did fully eclipsed the value of who he was. This new standard necessitated grouping people according to their specialty or their life stage. Young were corralled into schools, dads were rushed off to one job and moms to another, grandparents were ghettoed into senior care homes. Everyone in these segregated spheres became increasingly blind to others' needs beyond their own circle and therefore unable to meet them. Industrialization even radically changed our tools. For millennia, tools were almost solely handmade by their owner and typically multi-purpose. They were generally less precise and finely tuned than modern tools since the user's skill and talent were considered far more critical. Today, many industries, like the medical field for instance, invest far more time and training into learning to use the machines and tools of the trade than understanding the fundamentals of the actual trade itself. Today, computers and robotic automation make human touch increasingly obsolete, sadly collapsing traditional vocations and their generational wisdom and skills. This brave new world exalts young minds as the most essential ones to society, those that are most adept at programming modern bots and robots that in turn eventually replace them. In contrast, the older ones who cling to the traditional relational ways are methodically just pushed aside. By breaking down intergenerational communities, lifetime bonds that formerly evoked and sustained deep love between people have unraveled and nearly vanished. The experts with the best tools and scientific know-how now attempt to cure all the relational, emotional, and physical breakdowns of the society that their professionalism has created. I believe that few today would celebrate the long-term effects of this radical experiment, this industrialization of human relationships. In the middle of this fragmenting maelstrom of confused priorities and broken families, God has graciously allowed you two to grow up in a microclimate of wholeness, lifelong relationships, clarity of vision, and healthy families. This success has been no accident. Starting 50 years ago, first Brother Blair and Sister Regina, then your grandparents with so many others, painstakingly built the alternative that you live in. Over the past half century, they wrestled through deliberate choices from the seemingly mundane, such as where to work and where to live, to how to birth and teach their children, or what kind of relationships comprise an authentic, altruistic society, or what it truly means to worship God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now here you stand as the third generation of this uncommon legacy, 
How will you keep this inheritance alive, expanding and thriving? More specific to today, how will you two channel and grow the intense love that you feel right now, expanding it to meet life's inevitable trials and hardships? You are both blessed with many talents. You have already used these gifts to serve your families and community. We have all benefited from your music, Stephen, and the willing help that both of you have given to countless community projects. Julie, what would we be without your delicious, beautiful pies and cakes? At least some would be half the people we are today without them. <laughs> we, we must remember that God bestows such talents as tools to help us serve others and to build his kingdom. Gifts are not the totality of who we are or even always the best answer to the needs around us. And I'm sure you know this, but you're not marrying one another's gifts. You're marrying one another. I was recently joking with some of your younger siblings by waxing eloquent on what it takes to be a real cowboy. At the top of the list, of course, is having the proper gear. This starts with embossed cowboy boots. Then you need engraved spurs, a one million X felt cowboy hat, <laughs> custom chaps, and the right brand of rope. If you have all of these, the rest will magically fall into place. You'll automatically ride a horse like you grew on it. The lasso will leap from your butter soft hands and gracefully loop around the steer's neck. And herds of cattle will always go exactly where you want them while driving them through the Texas sagebrush. It's truly unbelievable how this works. We all know this is silly, but some can make the same mistake with love and commitment that kids make about cowboys. They assume that if they assemble all the external pieces, adopt the standard roles, and use the correct terms, they will magically become a godly husband, wife, father, or mother. The city-living Cavender's cowboys would be bashed and bruised and likely broken by the life and work of an actual cowboy on the open range. So also, many fantasies start to die at the marriage altar as tough life mocks and shreds all the cheap outfits and roles that we imagined made for love. As chaps and spurs don't make a cowboy, neither will dreams, fondness, or even God-given talents make a successful marriage, family, or community. You are both young and have enjoyed a relatively easy road so far. As you excitedly look to the future, hearts brimming with dreams and hopes, it would be unfair for me not to warn you that real life will throw unexpected curveballs and hardships your way, which all the tools in your bag will not solve. Needs will arise that will take you beyond your competence and talents. Needs only answered by a love that lays down its life for the other. As I pondered all this, a story I heard once came back to me. It occurred in 1897 in a little village on an island in Prince William Sound off the coast of Alaska. A young man named Carl Claudie was employed there doing some geological work. While there, he struck up a close friendship with a 15-year-old Aleutian boy named Jinkus Wojtmea, whom he called Jinx for short. Jinx was somewhat of an outcast in his native tribe because everyone considered him a coward. Being terrified of water, he wouldn't even step foot in a canoe. The Aleutians scorned this fear because the sea was where they made their livelihood. But Jinx seemed to genuinely like Mr. Claudie because he never mocked him or spoke his name with the Aleutian adjective that means one who is afraid. During one of their conversations, Jinx, who spoke a little English, offered to take Mr. Claudie on a hike to the plateau of a mountain 
on the island that offered a stunning view. As Mr. Claudy discovered on this hike, Jinx was no coward. At the time, though, they were in the middle of a three-day deluge of rain and thunderstorms and could not leave immediately. When the rain had subsided, they launched on their adventure together. Mr. Claudy vividly describes the treacherous climb up the mountain as they slipped on the soft, wet ground and repeatedly fell on their faces. Several times, they came to steep, sheer banks where Jinx would somehow shimmy to the top, tie off a 40-foot rope they had brought, and lower it down to Mr. Claudy so he could climb up. However, when they reached the top, all tribulations were forgotten in the most spectacular view. The following is a brief excerpt from Mr. Claudy's first-hand account. Directly in front of me, the rock sloped away steeply for about 40 feet, then took a steep dive downward going sheer to the Pacific Ocean, about 3,000 feet below us. The Alaskan Gulf looked like a vast panorama. On each side of me stretched away in limitless perspective the Alaskan continuation of the Rocky Mountains, snow-capped always. For half an hour, we just looked, saying nothing in awe of the spectacular view. After walking a rod or two along the brink of the incline, I sat down on a little knoll of grass-covered earth, letting my feet hang over on the rock slope below, and prepared to enjoy the changing lights and shadows of the clouds on the sunlit sea. Jinx went to sleep, reclining against a tree directly behind me. Then it happened. As I was sitting there peacefully, my thoughts on anything but the recent rainstorm, the little knoll, its cohesive force loosened by the water it contained, gently detached itself from the rock and slid with me on it swiftly down the 40 feet of rock slope toward the brink below. As I went down that terrible slide, my first thought was to jump to safety, my next to spread out and attempt to catch on some projection of rock, my last a prayer for help. Jinx says I screamed and woke him, but I have no recollection of it. In three or four seconds, I had arrived at the edge, convinced that another instant would see me hurtling through the air to the rocks 3,000 feet below. But on the very edge, I stopped, caught on a small uprising bit of rock. I was flat on my back, my arms extended on either side of me and above my head. I was bent in the form of a bow because my body from my waist down was over the brink. I heard Jinx shout, coming now, mister, got rope, get up, minute, now, finishing off with a long string of elution, which, although incomprehensible, was very comforting. I attempted to turn my head to one side very slowly and carefully, and at last, by dint of much straining of eyes, I was able to see Jinx above me working madly to get the rope untangled. In a moment, he had finished, and then I had the impatient pleasure of seeing the rope coming slowly down the rock face, twisting and turning like a thin, long snake. I heard nothing, felt nothing, neither pain nor fright. I saw nothing but this rope snaking slowly towards me. And then it stopped, just six inches above my hand. My arms were stretched to their fullest extent, but the rope did not reach my hands. Then, after a moment, the rope receded some four or five feet, underwent sundry gyrations, and Jinx disappeared from view. Then, the rope descended again, this time with about a foot to spare. I held my breath, got a good firm grip with one hand, then with the other, and then, putting my weight on it slowly and timorously, afraid it might give in some way, I began to haul myself up. At last, I got my feet on the rock, and the rest was easy. Turning on my face, I could help my arms in their task of hauling by sticking my toes into cracks and on projections as I had seen Jinx do. Halfway up, though, I had a terrible moment. The rope seemed to give a little, and at the same time, I heard a smothered cry from Jinx. Now I was but ten feet from the top, now eight, now six, four feet, three feet, another haul, 
And I was almost there. One foot, safety. And then I understood why Jinx was not in sight. He lay at full length on his face, his arms locked around the tree that he had been using as a pillow earlier. The rope knotted around one ankle. The rope had not been long enough, so Jinx had lengthened it with his own body. Anyone who has ever attempted to remain suspended by the arms for more than a few seconds will have some faint idea of what poor Jinx must have suffered on that rack. I weigh 180 pounds. The pain he endured without a murmur can be indicated by results. One of his arms was out of joint. That accounted for the sudden give in the rope and the smothered cry. The flesh on the ankle where the rope had been tied was cruelly crushed and bruised. Except for seeing him lying there suffering that I might live, I would have fainted in reaction to the nervous strain. Instead, I fell on my face beside Jinx with one arm around his neck and burst into sobs. But in a moment, he was sitting up, his dark face shining with joy in spite of his pain that he had saved Misser from death. We made it back to town where Jinx was nursed back to health and so loud were my praises of Jinx, he soon became the hero of the town. I doubt I need to expound much on the moral of this story. When we reach the end of our rope, sometimes we have to become the rope. When our gifts, talents, and all the tools that have served us so well in other situations can't quite reach the need facing us, something else has to come up inside. It may be painful and feel like it's pulling our joints out of their place, but self-sacrificing love is always worth it in the end. When faced with a friend's need, the song we sang earlier said, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. You will both find times when you will need to be that bridge for each other, for your children, for your brothers and sisters, and for your friends. But you'll often find those that once crossed on your bridge will in turn become a bridge for you. Sometimes it may feel like you're being walked on, but as is often said, love is its own reward. As you launch on this new journey of marriage, many are wishing you success. But do you remember, Stephen, what Grandpa told us once about what the word success or succeed actually means? It originally comes from the Latin sub, under or after, and sedere, to go or move, and literally means to follow or go after. We use these words in this manner even today when we say King Charles succeeded his mother Elizabeth on the throne of England or when we refer to the line of succession for the U.S. president. Today's common usage that denotes individual prosperity only emerged long after the word simply meant one generation succeeding another. Today, I hold a picture in my mind of successive generations of love and faithfulness joined together in one continuous rope of intertwined lives, exemplified by so many in the first generation of our community, and going all the way back to one man hanging on a tree to rescue all of us from going over the brink. Stephen and Julie, we all wish you the greatest success on the adventure before you. Cling to one another, to your community, and to your God, even when it hurts. We look forward to seeing love's strong rope extended even further by your two lives together. Stephen and Julie, be the rope. We all sing together. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords. 
that cannot be broken. Bind us together.